Well, I think uh, many of you have met, not all of you have met uh, Ty Story. Ty's sitting in the back there. He, he and I have been hanging out together uh, every week. We've read a couple interesting books, and, uh, and he had an excellent question for me the other week. And it was excellent, not only because it was a good question, but because it was perfect in that it teed up the sermon I have to preach today. So I, I thank him for that. Um, his question was, why would God choose just one people? Why would God pick just one tribe? I mean, it, it seems kind of exclusive, right? It seems like, I mean, if, if God's the God of the whole world, and if God loves everybody, which he does, then why would he just pick one people to be his people. And I think that our reading this morning from 1 Kings helps us to get a sense of what his strategy is, and then we'll look at how that cashes out for us. Back in chapter 12 of Genesis, we have the beginning of the story of, of Abraham. He's still Abram at that point. And a lot of things have happened in the story before that. Remember, you have the creation of the world, and humanity is given a beautiful garden to dwell in, and of course we do what human beings do when we're given anything wonderful, is we manage to mess it up. We manage to mess it up terribly. We take what is beautiful and perfect, and because of our sin, now relationships are broken. Now we have guilty consciences. Now our relationship with God is not what it was. Now in fact, the, the whole of creation is not working the way that it was supposed to. And, and instead of being able to joyfully receive the good fruits of the land, we now have to scrape out a living until we grind ourselves back down into the dust we came from. And then we get all kinds of awful things like murder, rape, urban planning. And so, in the beginning of chapter 12, what we find is the story of God saying, okay, I'm going to pick one people. Now, why did he pick the one people? Well, here's what he told Abram. Yahweh said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household, go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Again, that seems like that's terrific if you're lucky enough to be Abram or Abram's descendants. But that's not all he says. He says, I'll make your name great. You'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Again, that sounds great if you're Abram. God's going to bless those who bless him. God's going to curse those who curse him. If, if you're Abraham's friend, then, then God's going to go easy on you. And if you're not, then, then you're going to get it. But then he says this, and all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So the point of God choosing Abram and choosing this one people was not so that he would just have his favorites and lavish them with all the blessings that he'd like to. 
Not just that he would pick one people and, and have them be the only ones that have safety and health and prosperity, although he did give this people his Torah so that if they followed it, they would have those things. No, he did it in order that through them, God would undo all of the chaos that we brought to creation. He blessed them in order that they would be a blessing to all the nations of the world. So his strategy for reaching all the nations was not as kind of was the case with the, the Noah stories, wipe the slate clean and start over. Maybe these guys won't be as messed up as the first ones. No, he says, I'm going to pick one people. And in a sense, I'm going to infect the whole of creation with my blessing, with my goodness. And so the, the way that story works out, of course, is that, that uh, Abram uh, has, uh, has his, his uh, children, uh, has Isaac, and then he has, uh, Isaac has Jacob, and the, the nation Israel uh, is, is put into slavery in, in Egypt, and then they're rescued out of slavery, and then they're brought into the land. And uh, that process is a messy and imperfect one, but at the point in the story where we join Solomon at the dedication of the temple, things are going very, very well. Solomon is in many ways, the greatest king of Israel, and then he inherited a whole lot of the successes of his father David. Solomon is the one who built the temple, built the great palace for himself, but also uh, David had built the palace. Solomon made it spiffier. But Solomon got to build this magnificent temple for God. And if you thought that Jim was doing a long reading and actually a whole bunch of stuff got cut out, Solomon had a lot to say when he dedicated the temple, and he asked God for a lot. But one of the really important things that he asked was not just that when God's people came to pray in the temple that he would hear them, although he did. What did we hear him say at the end? As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, i.e. because of your reputation. Because men are going to hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and he prays toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever that foreigner asks of you so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and may fear you just as do your own people Israel. So they may know that this house I've built bears your name. It's so important to understand what's going on in this passage. Solomon is praying not just for God's people, not just for the nation of Israel, not, not just for the nation of, of, over which he's king, for which he's responsible, but he's praying for everybody else too. It's one of the reasons, that, apart from the fact that it's just bad Bible reading, I get annoyed when people take the, uh, the, the parallel passage to this in Second Chronicles. You may have heard this, Second uh, Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and, and uh, seek my face and, and pray, then I'll hear from heaven. If you're not an ancient Israelite, that's not you. 
right? My people doesn't just mean anybody who wants to attach himself to God. There, God is referring specifically there to the people of Israel. In fact, he also refers specifically to the people of Israel after they have suffered a particular type of calamity. So if you're not an ancient Israelite having suffered that calamity, you don't get to just take that and make it yours. You need to do a little bit of work. But here, Solomon is saying, when your people come and pray to you, when they pray to you against plague, when they pray to you for deliverance, when they pray to you for victory, hear them. But also, also, hear this foreigner when he comes. And you see throughout Torah, throughout uh, the way that, that uh, God dealt with, with all kinds of people who came into his people from elsewhere, the, the strong sense that God's people was a people that he called, but they were also people that drew in others. You think of the, the two spies that went to the promised land and didn't mess that up. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Jephunneh wasn't an Israelite. Caleb was a foreigner. So you had one foreigner and one faithful Israelite who were willing to trust God enough to say, yes, we can go in and take this land. Throughout Torah, you find that, that foreigners have the same rights of due process that any Israelite has. They, they, they are, uh, they're, they're, uh, do equal protection under the law. They don't get all of the benefits that, that an Israelite has, but, but they're to be treated with justice, treated with fairness, and treated with hospitality. One of the reasons you treat the foreigner with hospitality is if God is drawing them to his temple because of his great name, it would kind of mess that up if his people were not welcoming the foreigner who came in and heard about God's great name. And then you get the kind of comment that Gandhi made. You know, he says, uh, somebody said, what do you think, of, what do you think of, of Jesus Christ? He says, I like your Christ. I don't, not your Christian so much. No, the goal was that God's people would be a living billboard for what it looks like when you are living in harmony with the God of the universe and His purposes. And the idea was that the nations would come to the temple, not to destroy it, not to plunder it, but to worship the one true God. And we know that because of the nation's unfaithfulness, while some foreigners did come to the temple to worship eventually, they did come to destroy it. And so, as you know, we've, we've been in Ephesians this summer. Paul tells us in chapter 2, you may remember, of Ephesians, that in, in establishing the church and in making the church what it is and bringing the church together from among all kinds of different folks, he says, you've got to remember this is chapter 2, verse 11. Those of you who are Gentiles by birth, who are not physical descendants of Abraham, remember that you used to be excluded. You used to be separate from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners. You are foreigners to the covenant of the promise. You, 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 therefore, you didn't have hope because you didn't have God. But now, now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away 
you've been brought near through Christ's blood. For he himself is our peace. He's made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. And the point of this exercise, Paul says, was in order to create in himself one new person out of the two, making peace. And in this one body, the body of Christ, the church, to reconcile everybody to God through the cross. I mean, he, on the cross, he put their hostility to death. So you don't need to have this hostility between you, Paul says. He put that to death on the cross. He came, he preached peace to all of you who are far away, as well as to those who are near. Because it's through him that we both Jew and Gentile alike, have access to the Father by the one Spirit. There's one God. It's not this competing thing. It's one God, and it's through Christ that we all may have access to Him by the Spirit. And what that means, consequently, Paul says, what that means is that those of us, like myself, like I think most, if not all of you, who are not physically descended from Abraham, we're not foreigners anymore. We're not aliens. But we're fellow citizens with God's people. Like a foreigner who would have come into the nation of Israel and who would have been welcomed by the ancient Israelites if he had wanted to join, we too have been welcomed as fellow citizens with God's people. We're members of God's household built on the foundations of the prophets and apostles and prophets. And Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. In him that whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. So just as in Solomon's time, now about 3,000 years ago, people would come to the temple in Jerusalem having heard of God's great name, hearing of his reputation, and they would come to worship. So now today, people come where? To this new temple, this holy temple built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The church is what that temple was in the sense that it is the place where people come because they hear of God's great name and they can come to worship him. So what that means for us First of all, we need to welcome those who are coming. It also means we need to embrace the reality that Paul tells us about in 2 Corinthians, where he says that God has entrusted to us this message of reconciliation, this, this word that God was in Christ reconciling all of creation to himself, not counting people's sins against them. Sin is the thing that messed it up in the first place, Sin is the problem that God solves on the cross through Christ's death. 
And because of that, all of us, those who are literally Abram's descendants and those who have the faith that Abraham had in the God who can raise the dead, all of us are brought together. And we, as his followers, were his, his ambassadors. Just like the people of Israel were not given the blessings in order that they would just sort of sit there and be happy being God's blessed people. They were blessed in order to be a blessing. So God's people are given the blessings of reconciliation with Him and with our, one another and with our own consciences and with the world around us. Not just so we can enjoy those, but so that we can invite others to do the same. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury back during World War II, famously said that the church is the only organization that exists for the benefit of non-members. And that's what we get to do. That's what we get to be. That's the privilege we have as God's people, built together into a holy temple. Amen.